Welcome to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin, a show where we report, rebel, and you know we tell it just like it is. On this show, we're cutting to the chase. We're joining you out of the studio, on the ground, to talk about some of the most critical issues facing us today, including the rule of law and what's happening at our United States Supreme Court in the backdrop of the Supreme Court taking on the Dobbs case. It's the case that involves the 15-week abortion ban imposed by the Mississippi legislature, signed into law by their governor, but was enjoined by Judge Carlton Reeves. The Supreme Court decided to take up that case and on December the 1st, there were oral arguments held in that case. What's at stake now, not only in Mississippi, but potentially 26 other states and really the rest of the country? Joining me to unpack these issues and more are very special guests. We're on the ground and out of the studio for this episode, and we bring it to you in three parts. In part one, you're going to hear from Shannon Brewer. Shannon runs the last and only abortion clinic that remains in the state of Mississippi. I'm so grateful to my colleague, Anoa Shanga, who did this reporting for us at Ms. On the Ground in Mississippi. In part two, I couldn't be more happy than to be joined by Renee Bracey Sherman. She's been hailed as the Beyonce of abortion storytelling. She's Chicago-born, Midwest-raised, an activist, a writer, and reproductive justice activist, some would even say warrior, who's committed to the visibility and representation of people who've had abortions. She does this in media and pop culture, and she helps them tell their stories. Finally, in part three, we turn to the rule of law, not only what could happen in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization case, but more broadly, what does this case mean for democracy, for the rule of law? Many are saying it's the first abortion case in front of the Supreme Court that could lead to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Is that the case? Should we be concerned along that way? I'll be joined by Hillary Schneller. She's a senior staff attorney at the Center for Reproductive Rights. She's co-lead counsel along with Julie Reichelman in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization case. Bringing back Bridget Amiri to our show. She's the deputy director of the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project. She's an expert in reproductive rights law. Last but not least, I'm joined by Aziza Ahmed. She's a professor of law at the University of California, Irvine. She's also the author of the forthcoming book, Feminism's Medicine, Law, Science, and Social Movements in the AIDS Response. It's to be published in 2022. We now turn to the interview with Shannon Brewer. And again, I'm so grateful to Anoa Changa. You'll hear her voice in part of this segment. She interviewed Shannon Brewer on the ground in Mississippi, where there is only one abortion clinic that remains. It's a clinic that has been picketed. It's a clinic that receives threats every day. It's a clinic where people have to steel themselves against the kind of violence that exists outside of the clinic every day just to get this basic reproductive health care that's provided by the team of folks that work with Shannon Brewer. Let's turn to that audio. It's important to take a very close listen and to understand just what's at stake in this case. What does it mean to be the last remaining clinic in hmm. the state? Like, what, like, in your own words, of your own experience, like, what is that to be the last provider left? 
being the last provider is 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 it's scary really. It's scary because it's like it's it's almost like like everybody is looking at your clinic now. Mm. Everybody is making is is looking at you to see if you're doing all the right things. If you're if you you know, if you forgot to, you know, cross your T's, dot your I's, you got to do, you know, even though you, you, you're trying to do everything you're supposed to do, it's like all eyes are on your clinic, you know, to make sure you're in compliance with every single thing. It's a scary situation, you know, and and it shows that, it shows what they, what they can get accomplished over time by chipping away little by little. At these laws, they pretend they pretend like these little laws don't mean anything, but it's showing you that these little bitty laws that they're that they gotten they've gotten passed over the years. This is the big impact that 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 they was that they have been trying to get accomplished the whole time. They just do it little by little, and and now they've they've gotten it down to one clinic, and this is what they're trying to accomplish. And now they've gotten to the point where it could be. It could take take this last planet. Yeah, it, it's it's scary, honestly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What um so just like with this, you know, everyone's been talking about the 15 week abortion ban and the Supreme Court case. What is what what is your feeling like? How are you thinking about, or do you even think about like these these legal battles and stuff happening? Um, in the terms of the ability for the for the clinic to continue in providing care, like right now, and just like between now and then, just looking forward. Yeah, I think about it because I have to. I have to think about it because uh, we're having to deal with it with the lawyers, and you know, mm-hmm. every day, and we're you know constantly talking to the lawyers, and so so of course I have to constantly think about it. It's. I try not to focus on it so hard every day because I, we're still seeing patients. Like tomorrow morning, we're, we're gonna you know have patients all day. So I try to focus on how many you know seeing all the patients every day up until then. But we do you know you you can't help but think about it because that's like you know that time is coming soon. Mm-hmm. That you know that's less than a year away. I mean, the, the court hearing is this year, and then the decision will be made by spring. So, you know, you can't help but to think about that. You know, people, you know, people ask me, what do you think, you know, do you think really think they would do this, and do you really think they would do that? Usually when people ask me that about anything pertaining to the clinic, I usually have a, a definite answer. I would, you know, I would say, like, no, um, they wouldn't dare do this or they wouldn't dare do that. But, like, this time, and maybe that's why I'm so worried is because I'm really not sure this time because I was so sure that they wouldn't take the case. Mm. And that's what worries me because I would have never thought the Supreme Court would take the case. Even with, even with the, the people that they have there, I would have thought they wouldn't have. We turn back now to our interview with Shannon Brewer. 
She's perplexed, as many people are, about the anti-abortion legislating taking place in states that have not shown a commitment to children after they are born, states that do quite poorly in education, in health care, in providing jobs and opportunities for people to really live out and to have that American dream. It's important to listen closely to what she's saying because it really sets the stage for just what's at stake in these times. Um, one thing I've learned is that our governor, our, our government of Mississippi don't seem to care about children once they're here. Everything about everything that they vote for and against shows that they they have no desire to to uplift women or children once the child is here. They vote against anything that's going to help a child or or a female once that child is here. Education is at an all time low here. And they don't care. They cut back on everything. They cut Medicaid. They cut child care. They cut everything. They cut they cut child care for women that were in school. I can remember they cut child care so bad a few years back. I had someone who owned a daycare. They wiped almost all the kids out of his daycare. Those parents that were in school. It wiped almost all of those parents out because they completely cut them off. These are the, these are the same people who love children so much. I don't understand that. This is the same government that, that claims to love children and they so against abortion. See, they contradict everything they say. Every one of these abortion bills that they pass and we, and our attorneys fight, when we win these, these, against them when these bills these uh, lawsuits do you know do people, a lot of people don't even know it's millions of dollars paid out from the state from tax this is paid from taxpayers dollars paid out millions of dollars you can give millions of dollars <laughs> when y'all lose y'all can give millions of dollars to some pro-choice people when they lose. Shannon Brewer helps us to put into clear terms just what's at stake in Mississippi, but Mississippi's not alone. In part two of this episode, we turn to Renee Bracy Sherman. Renee has done incredible work on the ground working with people to lift their own voices and to tell stories about abortion. Now, many people say people shouldn't have to shout their abortion or tell their abortion stories. And yet what Renee finds to be important is normalizing abortion as basic health care and bringing people outside of the closet so that they can feel comfortable in sharing who they are without stigma and stereotype and without punishment. I couldn't be more happy than to have spent time with Renee Bracy Sherman, and we share this with you right now.
first, thanks for having me. It's so great to be here. You know, you know, I love you and your radio love you voice. Back. Love it. Love it. Um, so one of the things that we wanted to do, um, we've done these abortion storytelling briefs or um, amicus briefs that are sent to the Supreme Court with people's abortion stories um, before. So it's not the first one. But in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, um, in that case, we really wanted to do a brief that illustrated the sheer volume of how many of us have had abortions, shared our stories, and are just like, no, we want access to abortion to remain. Um, the anti-abortion side had already submitted their brief, which had, I believe, 375 um, people who've had abortions. Some of them were kind of anonymized stories and um, just people who regretted their abortions. And so um, our my organization, We Testify, partnered with Advocates for Youth, our movement bestie organization. They also do storytelling work. And, you know, we said, what if we did an amicus brief um, that, of course, included people's abortion stories, but was sort of um, a, a people's brief, a sign on where people who've had abortions could add their name to this brief as signatories. And I believe a lot in like the work that I do in symbolism and all that. So it was a bit of um, a throwback and ode to the Ms. Magazine. Um, we had abortions um, letter that Gloria Steinem and a bunch of other uh, folks who've had abortions when it was legal that they all worked on. And and so we thought, what if we did something like that? And, um, you know, because of timing and everything was happening, we only had a week to get it together. Um, but in a week, we got 6,641 people. Stop the working. music, as they would say, stop <laughs> the music. I know. You, know, you start <laughs> off with you know, 375 and it's like, oh, that sounds like so many. And in a week. Yeah, it was funny because our goal, I always said my goal was 376. I just wanted to have one more than the antis. And, and my, my philosophy in life and in my work is that under promise, over deliver. Um, well. You're a baller. And within the first day, yeah, I mean, we hit the first number like just in the first couple hours and we couldn't believe it. But to me, it, it really spoke to this, this political moment where people have just had enough and want to share their stories that wanted to speak out. And then on a personal note, um, I've asked my mom to sign on to briefs and things I've done in the past before. And she's always been like, mm, no, mm, you know, and just didn't really, it was like, that's what you do. And so I asked her again and this time she said, yes. And it was just this, this reminder of, you know, how critical this moment is, how fed up people are. Um, we're not scared of being um, secretive and, and shamed about our abortions anymore. We are speaking out. And then also, of course, to not only have my name in there, but my mother's name in there, um, three of my cousins, uh, my aunts in there. It was this beautiful reminder of how many of our families are shaped by abortion access and and like my life would not be possible. I would not be here right now if I a, didn't have my own abortion, but also if my mother did not have hers, my life would not, I would not exist. And, and that's so an, 
important part of the narrative that gets lost. Mm -hmm. uh, this idea that uh, abortion, first of all, the, the, the misnomer, right, the very purposeful framing that abortions hurt women, that right. abortions are the risky health thing, rather than the sad reality in the United States, which is that if you try to carry a pregnancy to term, that's when you might die in the United States. Yeah. Um, the other thing is like the failure to understand that by women, people being able to make their own decisions with regard to abortions, that they end up being able to create healthy families, happy families. And that's one of the things that you're telling right now. Absolutely. I think, you know, all of us deserve to be able to decide if, when, and how to grow our families on our own terms, you know, um, in our own situations. And sometimes that is from an unintended pregnancy and that's, you know, normal, right. And sometimes that unintended pregnancy, um, is not it. And so, you know, you decide to have an abortion so that later on you can have a, an intended pregnancy, a planned pregnancy or another in an unintended pregnancy where like, actually, I think I can do it this time. And, um, or, you know, my family's already complete. I already have children. And, and so I would like to have an abortion. And the majority of people who have abortions are already parenting. And so again, this is, this is how we, we build or decide not to grow our families. And I think um, the antis have really done a number on the misinformation and the lies and the stigma to say that people who have abortions hate children. They don't want to be parents, all of those things. It's actually the exact opposite. It is that they love their children that they have, that they are like, this is, this is what I want. I want to care for the ones that already have, or they say, I want to be in a place where I can parent to the best of my ability. And so this pregnancy is not it right now. And I definitely had a lot of antis for years would say, well, what if your mom had had an abortion? Well, guess what? My mom did have an abortion. And that's why I'm here telling you about yourself. That's what we're arguing because she was able to access abortion care. I really appreciate what you're bringing to the table because in law schools and in the case books and ultimately in the jurisprudence that results from courts taking on cases, identity is often are stripped away. Mm -hmm. you don't really understand it's not really presented the kind of texture of people's lives and what they encounter and what they go through and what you're describing is that there are families that have to make important decisions there are women that make important decisions because i've got two kids or three kids i don't get paid the wages that i deserve i've got to figure out a way to take care of my kids in a way that's dignified so that my kids aren't taken away from me I have to be able to feed my kids. I have to be able to clothe my kids. I have to be able to put a roof over my kids' heads. And it all has to be reasonable to satisfy this government that could otherwise police me and take them away from me if I don't do it to the standards that this government right. determines. Right. And I think, I don't even know if I... <laughs> can really talk about this, but whatever, I'm going to do it anyway, um, because it's the truth. And I think people need to know the truth and, and sort of how the sausage is made and behind the scenes. Um, obviously, you and I have had many conversations, particularly um, as, you know, uh, my co-author Regina Mahone and I are writing our book. And one of the things that you, you said to us um, that really has stuck with me is the way in which case law strips our humanity and all, all of the, like, you know, the meat on the bones, our stories, who we are right from these cases. 
Um, and so as we were putting this brief together, one of the things, um, the original firm that we were going to work with, um, not the one that submitted it, uh, did not want to talk about race, class, and gender identity in the way that my organization We Testify does in the way that I believe um, that it should be talked about. They wanted to write a quote unquote compelling brief for the court. And that meant not talking about our lives as they existed, meant not talking about- None of these not talking about black women, right? So compelling me, right? is let's just take away black women. Let's take right. away poverty. Let's take it all away. And I was like, then what is the point of this brief? Because if you are not going to tell our abortion stories in full color, <laughs> excuse the pun, right? The way that they are, then this is not a brief that I will have anything to do with. And so I walked away. Um, and then we ended up switching firms and we got to work with a firm that really understood that the reality is, is Kavanaugh's not going to read our brief and say, oh, wow, I really had not thought about how abortion impacts people's lives, right? The point of this brief was that if you are going to overturn Roe, you better do it and look every single one of us in the face. You're going to hear what's happening in our lives. You're going to hear about what is happening to the queer and trans people, the black and brown folks, the folks on Medicaid, who you're already harming with all sorts of other precedent that you're just remaking, right? You're gonna look us in our face and do it. You're gonna read all 6,641 of our names, hopefully see somebody in your community. You're gonna have to do that before you do this. And, and so I just felt like, I feel like there are ways in which even from our own side on the law, um, that people try to take away our humanity or, uh, or us talking right. about our lives and telling our stories because it's not quote unquote convincing enough. This erasure, it's, I it's okay. yeah, no. but it just, I mean, it really was just like, fuck you. Like this is, this is I'm, why am I taking away who I am so that it's a palatable version of myself for a court that already doesn't see me as a human. That that was painful. It remains painful. And it's the arc of, of history that takes us back to the very first uh, interruption of indigenous lands here by the folks who came and then imported black people to do the uncompensated labor here as enslaved persons and this failure to recognize the humanity, the dignity, the personhood of black women. Mm -hmm. And there is a thread that unites this from the very first till now. I mean, if the one thing that we can see across the various things that are illogical, inconsistent and whatnot has been the robbing of black women of human dignity, autonomy, freedom and liberty in this country as related to their reproductive health care. And it's undeniable. And just what you say now is that this is something that's important to recognize, not just within the anti-abortion space, but even amongst those who would claim our own friends. 
Exactly. That black women are supposed to be silenced, that we're not supposed to talk about Fannie Lou Hamer and the infamous Mississippi and appendectomies that were performed against little black girls in Mississippi. They're not supposed to talk about black women being coercively enforced, sterilized, that we're not supposed to talk about what it means when Mississippi and Texas and other states have no exceptions for rape or incest and their anti-abortion laws where there would be people of these movements that claim to care about personhood, but would deny that to 10, 11, 12 year old girls who become pregnant because of an uncle, a brother, a cousin or father. And it's part of what the power was and still is of the brief that you did, of the work that you do. I want to ask you about how you uh, came away hearing the oral arguments um what was your sense about where this is going what's your sense about the responses from the justices so um (laughs) this was i don't know if it's embarrassing i'm just gonna be honest i actually didn't listen to them because um i saw i heard a couple clips um and some of the clips that i heard when like when justice roberts said putting the data aside That was all I needed to hear as to where we're at, right? Because he has all of this empirical evidence-based research in front of him, telling him what the truth is. And he said, putting that aside. And I also couldn't listen to it live because I was the MC of the rally for nearly six hours, right? And so all I was told that day um, was that, okay, The lawyers are coming out, you know, in between introducing this person, that person, lawyers are going to come out. Can you like, let's cheer them on. Cool. And then also they said, you know, um, Justice Sotomayor really held it down. Right. She's just given fire questions and, you know, and so we know that her dissent is going to be fire. And so, so they told me that was happening. Um, And I like, the thing is, is that everything was said I knew was going to happen. Um, I knew and then later heard that Justice Amy Coney Barrett uh, was like, well, they could just give it up for adoption. Yeah, because that has literally been the anti-abortion talking points for decades, because at the end of the day, if you don't believe that pregnancy is any sort of life altering event is actually an impact on someone's life, then of course you're like, yeah, yeah, just go through it, whatever. If you don't care that somebody needs paid parental leave as all of our anti-abortion politicians don't believe, right? You don't care. So, so I don't know. I mean, like might surprise, I haven't actually listened to it yet. And I, and I will also be honest about why the other reason I haven't listened to it yet is that, um, this moment is really hard and painful. And, um, I had, uh, I was very nervous leading up to hosting the rally. And again, I'm seeing it again. Um, and the days after, you know, I had to do a lot of media and, um, I had to support storytellers. It was just like a very emotionally exhausting. So I couldn't be in the place to listen to it yet. Right. Um, I had to, I had to get whole and take care of my body first. So that was my priority. Um, but what I had to hold on to and I, I, by listening to it and I probably will maybe a little, you know, when I calm down a bit, I'm getting there. Um, but what I wanted to hold on to and not ruin the moment with was I was holding on to the energy from the rally 
and the beauty of how many people who've had abortions were sharing their stories in, in op-eds, um, just talking at the rally, uh, from the stage, right? All of this stuff. I wanted to hold on to that beauty and that energy because the reality is, is we know what's next. We turn now to the last segment of this episode where I'm joined by Bridget Amiri, Aziza Ahmed, and Hilary Schneller to give us a sense of what's happening on the ground in terms of law, not only in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization case, but more broadly in terms of what this case represents to the rule of law, to our democracy, and much more. Let's take a listen. Hillary, I want to start with you. Last week, uh, you and Julie Reichelman were in front of the Supreme Court in the oral arguments involving the Dobbs case, which brings us to this specific podcast. What's your sense coming out of oral arguments about what we can expect from the court? Sure. And thanks for having me. I mean, I think it's always really hard to read tea leaves. And so I try to avoid doing that. But one of my big takeaways was that both Julie and the Solicitor General for the United States, who argued on our side as well, were able to get out every argument that we had planned to right? about precedent, about the harm for pregnant people of taking away this right for the first time, taking away a fundamental constitutional right. Um, and the other big takeaway is, you know, the state doubled down on its radical request that the court overrule Roe, but again, did not make any new argument the court has not considered and rejected before. All they have presented is really disagreement with 50 years of precedent. So that said, what's the difference then that we see now uh, versus, let's say, before Amy Coney Barrett came onto the court or Brett Kavanaugh? I mean, that strategy, how do we, you know, what do we make of that strategy? Just get rid of Roe and now not just even the 15-week ban. I mean, certainly, right, the composition of the court is different than the last few times we have been before the court in the last, um, you know, six years. And some of the justices' questions were certainly concerning. You know, I think one in particular line of questions about, you know, the Constitution is not pro-life or pro-choice. It, you know, should we sort of leave this to the states and thus be neutral, I think was was concerning, given that, of course, the Constitution is not neutral on fundamental rights of our, you know, basic humanity. And again, I think we were able to address that question and say, of course not. There's a reason that certain decisions are not left up to the states. But right, I mean, I think the state is coming to the court now, given the the change in the composition of the court with, with a very radical request that it has not made quite Mm -hmm. so forthrightly before. Bridget, I want to turn to you and specifically as we think about the justices and the key roles that they play, the signaling roles with regard to oral arguments. And we have Justice Kavanaugh's attempt to justify some of what he considered the most consequential cases in the court's history. He named Lawrence v. Texas, Mapp v. Ohio, and uh, other ones that 
overturned precedent. This line of oral argument um, has really dispirited some. Can you give our audience a sense of where you think that Kavanaugh may have been going in terms of uh, the discourse about precedent and precedent sometimes having minimal value? Sure. And thanks also for having me. And it's so nice to be in community with all of you during this challenging time. Uh, so, you know, I think that, you know, Kavanaugh was signaling that he thinks it might be okay to overturn Roe versus Wade. And I think he's laying the groundwork for his justification if that's how he votes. Uh, it's always hard to say, as Hillary says, you know, what's actually going to happen. You know, we were on the precipice of having Roe versus Wade overruled in 1992 when the court decided Planned Parenthood versus Casey, uh, and the court did not. Um, so it's hard to say, but I think that diatribe um, by Kavanaugh was really um, about um, if he does vote to overturn Roe versus Wade, how he can justify. But it's really cynical um, to think that he is on the side of civil rights and protection of individual rights. Um, and, you know, don't even get me started about the invocation of racial justice. And Oh, I want to so get you started on that. <laughs> <laughs> it is so cynical um, uh, for, for um, Justice Kavanaugh and other justices who we know don't support those individual rights and do not um, uh, seek to protect um, racial justice in this country um, to then invoke those as a way of uh, justifying taking away, potentially taking away the right to abortion in this country. Mm -hmm. Aziza, I'd like for you to pick up on that too. Uh, it's not just Justice Kavanaugh, but also Justice Amy Coney Barrett then had particular um, matters to say with regard to adoption. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Michelle. Yeah, I, you know, she made a, a pretty shocking argument that could basically, or made a pretty shocking, um, took had a shocking line of uh, questions, actually, that that um, uh, in, in which she was basically making the point that because we've had, we have safe haven laws um, and there's been a greater uptake of safe haven laws um, in the United States. And can you explain what it, safe, safe haven laws are for people who don't know what that means? Sure, yeah. So basically what Amy Coney Barrett is doing is saying that because there is a way for a woman to carry her pregnancy to term, give birth, and safely leave that child, let's say at a fire station or in the hospital, essentially give the child up for adoption, that that is equivalent to being able to have an abortion uh, early in pregnancy or at least pre-viability. And I think this was shocking to so many people um, and reproductive rights advocates in particular, because she was basically saying that carrying a pregnancy to term is the same thing as having an abortion. And this is really where you see the power of um, a power of the claim that the state is actually willing at some points and that the court is actually entertaining the idea of essentially making women carry um, uh, uh, or be pregnant when they do not want to be pregnant, that there's essential forced pregnancy is an actual thing um, that's on the table at, at, in our current political moment. And so I'd like to open that up to both you, Hillary, and also Bridget on about this question of forced pregnancy and Justice Amy Coney Barrett, what, did, what were your takeaways from the questions that she asked and also what we could sort of take and intuit from what those questions were? Hillary, I'll start with you. Sure. I mean, so this is an argument the state briefly had in its brief, so it sort of didn't come completely out of nowhere, but her picking up on it was certainly interesting given the panoply of arguments you know, she could have, could have picked up on from the state. Um, you know, again, this 
this framing about trying to separate out pregnancy and the burdens of parenting is something Casey considered. It talks about the two lines of decisions that the right to abortion, the right to decide if, when, and how many children a person is going to have. Um, so it's, again, sort of not a new argument, but one that, you know, I think is trying to, I mean, as Aziza was saying, say that, well, if we could just kind of clip off and separate out parenting, are you really only basing the right to abortion on the burdens of pregnancy to sort of try to narrow the basis for the right, which is just, again, you can't separate them out so easily. And the burdens of pregnancy would be enough anyway, right? So it's, that was sort of an odd attempt to separate things out. The other thing is that I think the Solicitor General was able to raise was forcing someone to give a child up after they have given birth is also not an easy thing. And it's not sort of in line with the values of autonomy and dignity that the court's decisions have protected. Mm -hmm. Bridget, how about you? Yeah, so I think that um, Hillary's exactly right. And also, you know, Julie made the point at argument that um, forcing people to remain pregnant and give birth against their will also carries significant health risks. Um, women are uh, at risk of dying 14 times more um, from carrying a pregnancy to term rather than having an abortion. And in states like Mississippi, where there is a really high maternal mortality rate, um, particularly among Black women, the consequ consequences of forcing people to remain pregnant and give birth against their will are severe. So Adoption, safe haven laws are not a substitute for abortion, and neither is contraception. We heard that from some of the justices, too, that, well, just because there is the advent of contraception uh, and um, accessibility, and that's a whole other cynical line, too, is that the, the same justices who are trying to invoke contraception now um, don't support access to contraception. Um, so neither contraception nor adoption are substitute, substitutes for abortion. Mm -hmm. All right. So what were, let's pull this back a bit. What do you find to have been some of the most uh, shocking arguments that were being made um, during the hearing on Dobbs? Um, that is to say arguments that may have come from the lawyers or what we might have heard from the justices. And then I want to hear about what your sense is, uh, was of the sort of justices that were fighting to make it at least into the record the importance of the right to be able to determine one's own reproductive autonomy. What was surprising is hearing how seriously a set of claims uh, that Mississippi uh, made in the course of their brief, claims that as you know has been said as has been said already, I think Hillary, you mentioned this, that you know the court has already heard and dismissed most of these arguments, um, these critiques of the undue burden standard and, and the critiques of viability, the arguments made against viability. Um, for me, the thing that felt most worrying was um, Kavanaugh's uptake of this idea that the court can remain neutral um, and neutrality, the legitimacy and neutrality of the court could um, could essentially rest on the court not taking any action in the abortion space, that we'll just leave it to the states. And I think this was a scary argument to hear articulated by the justice because it did sound like an argument that could carry water in the eyes of many. It could continue to help legitimate the court, you know, to say, leave it to the legislature, leave it to democratic process. Um, and I think the thing that feels so um, 
as you said, Michelle, crazy to me is how nobody acknowledges, you know, on whose back that is going to fall. You know, it is poor women, it is black women, it is Latino women, it is women of color who cannot access, um, you know, abortion in this country for the most part. And it is those same women who often need abortion. And by the court remaining quote unquote neutral, they're actually acting in a way that will harm so many. And and to me, that's what, it's that kind of double move of, you know, being able to stand outside itself and say, we can be a neutral legitimate institution while also just undermining the health and life and well-being of so many people um, that that feels uh, crazy making to me. Mm-hmm. Bridget. I mean, yes. I mean, so much of it, too. And also, you know, to pick up that thread for Kavanaugh to push um, the Solicitor General of Mississippi and say, you agree with me, right, that this is just neutrality. We're not saying that uh, that, you know, there could be a nationwide abortion ban, for example. Um, and that's also a signal of like, you know, you know, tut tut ladies, you know, we're going to pat you on the head and say, don't worry about a national abortion ban because that's, that's crazy. That's never going to come. And, you know, we've all been raising the alarm bells, you know, for decades saying that Roe's being chipped away at abortions being pushed out of reach. We all need to be fighting to secure access. And if Roe is overturned, the next thing on the horizon is going to be a nationwide ban on abortion and a ban on contraception. That's what the other side is going to push. And that's what we're going to be fighting against as well. And so I think that's the other thing that was you know, signaling um, to me that there is going to be a way to try to say, if we overturn Roe, don't worry, because some states will still have access. But we know that the next thing on the horizon is for them to try to ban abortion completely um, in this country. Um, so that's the other that's the other thing just to pick up on what Aziza was saying, but also, you know, the, the conversation about um, Plessy versus Ferguson and Brown versus Board of Education is just so disturbing to me. This idea that Roe versus Wade, which found a fundamental constitutional right to abortion, could be considered as uh, parallel to Plessy versus Ferguson, which uh, sanctioned uh, our country's horrible history and laws and practice of racial discrimination, um, and that that somehow is, um, if they overturn Roe, that will be the decision like Brown versus a Board of Education, which overturned Plessy. Like the, the parallels are just so upsetting. And then that, so I think that that is also just one of the things that sticks out of my mind. Very recently, we did a show on violence, the histories of violence in the anti-abortion movement, which is something that doesn't necessarily get its uh, public due from traditional media. We're talking about organized collectives that identify themselves and that have been connected to uh, nearly 50 bombings of clinics in the last, since Roe v. Wade, uh, numerous arsons, homicides, threats of of homicide. In any other space, this would be considered terrorism. I mean, if there were organized movement in the United States that's responsible for killing people doing lawful things, for bombing clinics and other things like that, we would say there's, there's a list and there's a list in which we put organizations that pose this kind of threat. Uh, everybody on this particular episode probably knows doctors 
that have said that they cannot have their pictures public. I know doctors who've said that, uh, who help people terminate pregnancy, and they say that they can't have their pictures public because they're concerned about someone showing up at their house and gunning down their children. And that's not an unrealistic concern that they have, given that there have been physicians who have been targeted and who have been gunned down, and some who wear bulletproof vests in order to get their jobs done. Now, um, oral arguments weren't just about Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. I, I also want for us to spend some time thinking about, well, what was it that was at top of mind for Justice Sotomayor, Breyer, and, and Justice Roberts? And so before our show ends, I, I want us to unpack that a bit. There was a lot being said about Justice Sotomayor and that perhaps she was building a record for what comes next. What's your sense of that? How, how do you know, tell our audience what exactly Justice Sotomayor was talking about in oral arguments. So she was on fire. Um, she was fantastic. And, you know, she was, you know, saying a lot of the things that I, I was thinking. So I think that she, she was doing a couple of things. One is she was speaking to us. She was speaking to the public. Uh, she was she was using her time and argument to tell us what she thinks the dire consequences will be accurately if Roe is overturned and the devastating consequences um, to, to, to women, um, to people who uh, are, are capable of being pregnant um, and the consequences on the most marginalized communities. She was also talking to her colleagues and she was admonishing them publicly. If you overturn Roe, the stench is the word that she used, the stench that this court will have, we will be considered a political institution. We will not have the respect of the public. We will lose the integrity that we have. And so that's the consequence to the institution. So both we should care about the people who will be affected if Roe is overturned, and we should care about how the court is viewed in the public eye. What is it that's on your mind? What are you seeing uh, that's the vision, the next direction for us to go to? And Hillary, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think I have to sort of fundamentally be an optimistic person to do this work. And you, you know, do. <laughs> the, the, the stakes here are really high, but people are paying more attention, right? Seven in 10 Americans support the right to abortion. And, you know, even if the antis were louder outside the court, we actually are a majority. And I, I have to sort of continue to believe that that will ultimately prevail. The, the other piece of it is just um, to highlight some of the amicus briefs that were first of their kind in an abortion case, you know, briefs on behalf of birth equity, Black maternal health organizations saying that abortion is essential to our ability to make real decisions about our health and lives. You know, over 100 economists, you know, real hard science economists explaining that it is abortion that is responsible for advancements in women's ability to participate in a profession, continue in education. So it's unfortunate that sort of we have to come to the brink before people really start paying attention, but I'd rather sort of say welcome and let's continue to sort of build for the future. So that's that's my attempt at a silver lining for, for now. <laughs> Thank you, and you're right in the space in which you operate. That is important, bringing that energy, and you do. And I want to thank you for that uh, because it means a lot. You are really on the 
uh, battlefront, as are you, Bridget. So what do you see as the silver lining? And, and you've brought home victories. So so thank you, Bridget. Yeah, Actually, I mean, lots of folks need to be thanking you, Bridget. Yeah, I mean, all, all of us have, right, on the, on this uh, on this um, chat and, and in general in the movement as well. And I think, you know, for, for me, every day, every day that we can get a law blocked, it means that people can get access to abortion. Um, so every day that we're keeping the clinics open in Kentucky, in Mississippi, in Arkansas, abortion is life changing and so meaningful for people that every day we can make sure people have access to abortion is a day where we have done our jobs. So that is the very short term. I have hope uh, just as Hillary does that we will get to a place where abortion will just be part of healthcare. It'll be part of our lives. It won't be stigmatized. It won't be shamed. And so that is the, that is the ultimate goal. Um, I think that also, you know, people always have and always will have abortions. That's just true. And so what is that going to look like? Is it going to look like something that has happened in the last, uh, you know, several decades since Roe? Is it going, it's not going to look like pre-Roe because of the advent of medication abortion? Is it going to look like new delivery services um, systems for medication abortions? Uh, so I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but it, it, it might transform, but we will do everything that we can to uh, shape um, that, that new system and also support abortion funds and practical support organizations, the organizations that have already created the infrastructure to get people to abortions. And that's going to be a critical component of this too. Thank you so much. And that is a critical component of it too, the economic uh, considerations about helping people to be able to get the care that they need if in the state that's blocked. And that can only take place through certain resources being available uh, to the um, organizations and clinics that are helping in that regard. Aziza, take us home. So what do you see as the silver lining and what we should be hopeful uh, about, or as Hillary said, keep that optimism burning, uh, burning brightly. Yeah, I, I already feel a little better after listening to Hillary and Bridget. I but, know, doesn't Hillary you know. make you feel better? <laughs> thank you, Hillary. Everybody needs yeah. a little bit of Hillary. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Bridget too. I mean, thank you guys yes. both. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I write a lot about social movements. And so it, in my mind, this you know, is an opportunity, I think, to really build a strong and powerful movement of non-lawyers, of, you know, students. Um, you know, I've I've heard from a lot of students who are just sort of mind blown that they are in a moment in which they're young women and they might not be able to access the services they need. Um, and, you know, I keep thinking back to those early writings um, on Roe in which they said people were, were the, the anti-choice movement was very much mobilized uh, when Roe happened. You know, this is this, these were where some of the seeds were planted for what has become this very powerful movement that we are up against. And um, you know, I, I think this is our opportunity now to really say we're going to take back, take this back in our own hands, and we have a lot more people invested in this. And and I think also it's an opportunity, you know, for reproductive justice to play a central role in how we think about the future, for us to think about how we're going to broaden this movement. If we are, if this is going to be about democratic process, then we have to think about, you know, the elect electoral system. We have to think about voting rights. Um, and so there's a lot of opportunities. I think we just have to be creative and think big.
Yes, and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. We brought this episode to you out of the studio and on the ground. I want to thank my guests, Hilary Schneller, Bridget Amiri, Aziza Ahmed, Renee Bracey Sherman, and Shannon Brewer for joining us and being part of this critical and insightful conversation. And to our listeners, I thank you for tuning in for the full story. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode where we will be reporting rebellion and telling it like it is. As usual, it will be an episode you will not want to miss. And for more information about what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com and be sure to subscribe. And if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America and being unbought and unbossed and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to on the Issues with Michelle Goodwin in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. We are ad-free and reader-supported. Help us reach new listeners and bring the hard-hitting content you've come to expect by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. Let us know what you think about our show, and please support independent feminist media. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. And if you want to reach us, to recommend guests for our show or topics that you want to hear about, then write to us at ontheissuesatmizmagazine.com and we do read our mail. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Kathy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zoll and Oliver Hogg. Our social media intern is Lillian LaSalle. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Kyle Good, music by Chris J. Lee, and social media assistance from Lillian LaSalle. And we thank Anoa Shanga for her on-the-ground reporting. Stephanie Wilner provides executive assistance.